0: Welcome in to another episode of Grady Research Radio, the podcast highlighting the research and expertise coming out of Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. Advancing knowledge, innovation, and creation in the fields of journalism, advertising, public relations, and entertainment and media studies. I'm your host, Jackson Schroeder. up to the midterm elections in the state of Georgia, I had a conversation with Dr. David Clemenston, an assistant professor in public relations at Grady College and a political communication researcher about the state of political debates, whether they have any real influence, why some politicians shy away from debates, the art of dodging questions, and more. So I'm interested in debates and their influence or lack thereof. Um, Debates have seemed to have lost a little bit of their weight in recent years until about mid-September. Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, they didn't even have a debate scheduled between them. Some races throughout the country don't have debates at all. So my question is, what power do debates currently hold, um, and can they change minds, particularly in a race like the Warnock and Walker race, where candidates are so different ideologically?
1: Yeah, so debates are typically the most watched, most attended to, biggest audience, of any campaign event during a political season. If people are going to pay attention to most anything other than, say, a, a, a TV ad or YouTube ad that's in their face that they can't avoid, if they're going to be exposed to any campaign discourse at all, it's probably going to be a debate. And so, yeah, in the specific context of this Warnock-Walker uh, U.S. Senate race here in Georgia, The one and only debate that they're scheduled to have is likely to be the most watched sort of uh, event of the whole campaign season, the number one thing that voters will be exposed to and would be affected by. Now, to the question of would they really be affected by the debate? Would voters be impacted by it? What kind of results would it have? Typically... There's a few things. One, the first rule for the debaters tends to be to commit no errors, no unforced errors, no gaffes, no big mistakes. Because we can see anecdotally times through history when a a candidate might have had everything going for them and then they have some big flub, um, and they're essentially out of the race. Their support dries up. They're a laughing stock. They got to drop out because they committed some stupid gaffe. Um, so the first rule is just don't make any mistakes. Don't make any unforced errors, gaffes because the media are going to jump all over it and mock you, and it can be fodder for your opponent's attack ads. Now, secondly, uh, for the candidates themselves, Their main goal ought to be crystallizing and mobilizing, incentivizing their own supporters, because that's really the biggest effect that a debate is going to have. It's not going to change hearts and minds, most likely. It's not going to really affect uh, the ability to reach across the aisle and win over um, unaligned, unaffiliated voters really what they should be speaking to is their supporters, folks who are already inclined to be voting for them. Now, that's really tough advice for for a politician because, of course, politicians want everyone to love them. They want everyone on both sides of the aisle to, to see that they're the most perfect human being ever. But really, the biggest effect you're going to have is motivating your own base, your own supporters. Now, granted, there could be Uh, Republicans and independents inclined to support Warnock. There could be Democrats and independents inclined to support uh, Herschel Walker. But really, their chief goal has to be focusing on people who are already inclined to support you. Who's your base of support already? What do they want to hear you say? And then if you're speaking to them with the answer to every question, because that's research shows that you're really not gonna so much change hearts and minds. You might not even move the needle whatsoever, barring some unforeseen gaffe or scandalous outburst. Um, But really, you got to stay laser focused on just crystallizing your own support.
0: That's interesting. So it's mobilizing the support. So what kind of answers? Is there kind of like a formula for the types of answers that candidates can give that mobilize all of their supporters? Because, you know, in some instances, some a group of people may support you for X and another group of people may support you for Y. So is there a formula that candidates follow that helps to mobilize voters in debates? Yeah, it's a great
1: question. There's this, this theory in in our line of work called Equivocation Theory. It goes way back to 1988 and the first paper on it in the Journal of Language and Social Psychology was all about using equivocation, equivocal communication in politics. And the penultimate example of it was if you're asked this no-win question such as, do you support or oppose gun control? Now, that was their example of a no-win question back in 1988. And we see history repeating because that's probably the sort of question that they will be asked, a divisive no-win question. They'll be asked in the debate, do you support or oppose gun control? Now, according to equivocation theory, This kind of divisive question places the politician in what they call an avoidance-avoidance conflict situation, whereby any direct answer is going to turn off a sizable segment of your voting population. If you say, yes, I support gun control, you've just kissed away um, law-abiding, gun-owning citizens of Georgia who love their firearms. If you say I oppose gun control, then uh, you could be asked, oh what about the latest school shooting um, and other sorts of limitations on on gun control. so you can't you just can't win if you answer a divisive question whether it's gun control or abortion that they'd probably be asked about same kind of thing so, The way that you maneuver this kind of rhetorical minefield where you've got to appeal to 50% plus one of the voting electorate and you will be asked divisive questions, which will instantly offend large segments if you answer them, is you equivocate. That's the word for it. And equivocating as defined in our social scientific and social psychological research is to give a a non-straightforward answer. You're not going to give a direct answer. You're not going to lie. You're going to give an honest answer, but it's going to skirt specifics. So you're going to talk about what you support as far as gun control measures. If you're, you know, speaking as a a big fan of the Second Amendment and an NRA uh, member, you, you might talk about what you would uh, consider common sense gun control measures that uh, keep keep automatic rifles out of the hands of uh, uh, felons or uh, mentally ill people. If you're trying to Um, Talk about your support for gun control. You'll focus on law-abiding citizens and – but you have to equivocate. You have to give non-straightforward answers. And my research – I've done so much research of this very kind of thing, whether it's in debates or just general – Media interviews, equivocation is a brilliant maneuver for a strategic politician. It's also referred to as strategic ambiguity. Um, it's a brilliant maneuver if if you're good at it, and um, we'll see if uh, if Herschel Walker is any good at it. This will be his first debate, his first time like this. Although he has some experience um, giving interviews in the media, um, but yeah, that's how you ride that that fine line is by equivocating and then you magically can persuade diverse opinionated segments of the electorate to think that what you said really spoke to them. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Now, if, if done right, you'll have people on polar opposites of a particular issue who think that you said things that when you look later on the transcript, you didn't actually say. So it's uh, the power of equivocal communication.
0: great and And so if that is done poorly, though, I, I do know that journalists and others, voters in general, get on candidates for um, what they many people refer to as dodging questions and right. And I, I know that that has a People don't like necessarily or outwardly like when candidates are dodging questions, but is this kind of a smart approach for candidates? And ultimately, does that dodging questions have any negative impact on them in their debates? Because they seem to do a lot of it.
1: Right. So this raises a fascinating paradox of uh, political communication, media relations, debates. On the one hand, there's this overriding axiomatic assumption of political discourse in which we assume politicians dodge questions all the time. Most people think that you can't get a straight answer out of a straight question with politicians. There's the joke, you know, how do you tell if a politician is lying, his lips are moving. And similarly, as far as not just telling bold lies, but being unable to answer direct questions, always deflecting, always dodging. There is that that perception. So if you ask people in a survey, you know, how often do you think politicians dodge questions, the respondents are going to overwhelmingly say something. Well, they always, they're always dodging questions. You never get a straight answer out of them, right? Um, Meanwhile, this is a paradox because in experiments I've run that take it to the next level of looking at people's ability to actually detect real-world dodging of politicians, voters are really bad at it. Voters are really bad at detecting deception from politicians, right? So on the one hand, if you ask them in a survey kind of question, are politicians deceptive? Do they dodge questions? The elector would say, oh yeah, all the time. But if you don't ask them in that kind of way, you just show them a, a debate or you show them a, a media interview, and then you have them tell you what what they thought of it. They're likely not going to volunteer the opinion that they detected deception, and they're certainly going to be really bad at accurately detecting whether, in fact, a politician was was deceitful in in their answers in a in a debate or in a media interview. Now. A lot of that goes to what's called a, a truth bias or truth default in which people tend humans and voters are, are humans and politicians are humans. Um, we have this innate tendency as humans in our interactions with each other to assume we're being told the truth. That's called the truth default, truth default theory um, by Tim Levine at uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. And what this means is in order to efficiently get through our daily lives, we have to just believe each other. We can't function if anytime we're told anything by anyone, anytime we're exposed to any message, we stand there and fold our arms and scrutinize whether it's really the truth or not. We would never be able to get by. You couldn't ever have a second date with someone if you were scrutinizing the the veracity of every. So... Voters, as I found in my own research, while we might say, oh, they're going to be deceiving constantly and dodging all the questions, and they won't give any answers in this debate. Meanwhile, in actuality, based on experiments I've run, the truth default will be in full effect during this Georgia Senate debate. Voters will be inclined to be receiving incoming information as being truthful and my research has shown it even goes for for partisan scenarios. Um, a, a Democrat watching Herschel Walker, unless they ha- have had their suspicion triggered for some reason, they're going to be receptive to what Herschel Walker is saying, and have to then scrutinize it later for its its veracity. And same for for a Republican watching uh, whatever Warnock is saying in the debate. The, the truth default, it's pervasive, it's robust. People are going to be defaulting to the truth. And, of course, that's a weapon then that politicians can wield in the debate where the politician can actually exploit voters' truth default, which enables them to either just make up um, falsehoods or more likely to be able to deflect questions with relative ease.
0: Great, so the truth default is interesting. We we assume that these politicians are telling the truth when they're watching them in in live action. Um, But after the fact, and a lot of news publications airing these these debates, um, national publications, try to fact check in real time. And afterwards, as well, a lot of journalists or just general people will go in and do their own fact-checking of answers to the questions. So does inaccuracy in responses, if a candidate is is inaccurate in their response to a question, and that's found out at a later date, say, does that damage them? Does that damage their perception in, in voters' eyes?
1: Yeah, so there's a ton of research on the effectiveness of fact-checks, and there have even been meta-analyses of whether fact-checks work and if so, how. And one of the results in uh, fact-check meta-analysis has been the more politically attuned someone is, the less efficacy fact-checks have, like the the less effect a fact-check has on someone who's really involved in politics, really knowledgeable in politics. So conversely, if you're less knowledgeable and involved in politics, a fact check will have more effect on you. However, there's that kind of catch-22. If you're that uninvolved in politics and you're not paying attention to politics, politics and keeping up with the news, then are you really going to be exposed to a typical fact check outside of a a contrived artifactual research experiment? Um, So fact check research is all over the place, different findings, different kinds of variables involved. Um, Partisanship is just so strong that a fact check can even backfire. And a politician can use it to their benefit. That the you know quote-unquote liberal media fact-checked me and has calls me a liar, pants on fire, and uh, hasn't even fact-checked my opponent a single time. That that kind of thing can actually work to your benefit, as we've as we saw uh, with uh, Donald Trump. And. Um, so the effect of fact checks, yeah, if they're in, in live uh, in real time during the debate and people are watching uh, watching their, their Twitter feed instead of watching the debate and seeing what uh, various fact-checking organizations are saying, um, it can play a role in crystallizing preconceptions. If you entered the debate already supporting one candidate, you're probably going to uh, then you know, retweet uh, fact checks that are encouraging to your side and, and dismiss uh, cognitive dissonance of uh, fact checks that are are skewering your side.
0: Yeah. So earlier we were talking about <clears throat> dodging questions um, and some candidates throughout the country and here in Georgia to a certain extent have attempted to or successfully dodged debates entirely. Um, So my question to that is, are debates typically a net positive for candidates in terms of gaining voters or or is there a good reason for candidates to avoid them?
1: Yes. So the conventional wisdom with debates is that if you're the incumbent and you're ahead in the polling and you're out fundraising your opponent, you want to avoid debates like the plague. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So obviously, uh, interestingly, Raphael Warnock at this moment checks off all those three boxes, right? He's the incumbent. He's running for re-election. He's way out fundraising his opponent, and he has a slight lead in the polls. Um, So the conventional wisdom would be that in this kind of scenario, Raphael Warnock would be not wanting to have any debates and would be avoiding them like the plague. Meanwhile, the candidate who has phenomenal name recognition and big heroic status in the state um, but isn't leading in the latest polls and is being outmatched in fundraising and um, is the challenger, that he'd be wanting a hundred debates. He'd be calling on the incumbent, you know, to debate him every day and twice on Sunday. However, that's flipped in this scenario. And um, there's various, it's on a case-by-case kind of basis. In the Arizona governor's race, you got one candidate not wanting to debate so much. In the Pennsylvania uh, U.S. Senate race, you got one candidate not wanting to debate so much. And Dr. Dr. Oz wanting to have more debates. And then meanwhile, here in Georgia, um, we've got Warnock wanting uh, a bunch of debates and uh, uh, meanwhile, Herschel Walker held zero. He showed up to zero debates, and and uh, I don't think he even showed up to any town halls or candidate forums with other opponents um, during the Republican primary. Um, so he hasn't been so much vetted. He hasn't gotten the reps in the parlance of uh, you know being an athlete. Um, and so the conventional wisdom is you want to avoid being in a debate if you have a lot more to lose and very little to gain. Uh, meanwhile, for whatever reason, that's that's flipped in this situation.
0: Great, and there are other instances throughout the country um, where politicians have outwardly stated that they don't want to debate their opponents because. They are so different or they are conspiracy theorists or things like this, and they just think it would be impossible to reason with those people. So my question kind of based off this is if we are separating ideologically and the the and we're getting further and further apart, do you think that will contribute to a potential downfall of debates in the future? Or do you see us continuing to use debates as a tool
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I hope we don't diminish that, that our uh, love for debates doesn't uh, dissipate. But yeah, I can see that uh, in the last presidential election, uh, Biden and Trump only had two debates, right? And typically they have three debates and the vice president typically has one debate. Um, so they had one less debate than traditionally there uh, with uh, the presidential election Here um, in this general election for a a nationally watched U.S. Senate race, they're only going to be having one debate. Although debates are in the grand scheme of things, in history of of political campaigns, they're a relatively new phenomenon. Um, There was the big, you know, 1960 debates with uh, Kennedy and Nixon and then There weren't debates again for another, like, 15 years or something. I don't remember exactly. Um, But in recent memory, of course, we expect there to be debates. And it says something in our our desire for a good representative democracy. We want to see politicians up there have to answer questions spontaneously, off the cuff, straight from the heart – without other filters and handlers around them. And there's something undemocratic about only giving scripted talking points in other settings instead of putting yourself up there for 45 minutes or 90 minutes, whatever, for a debate. And so it certainly is a winning issue in terms of um, an informed electorate for politicians to consent to debates and to participate in debates, Um, you know, but Herschel Walker managed to win the Republican nomination easily against, I don't know, four or five Republican primary opponents without having any debate whatsoever. And he was hammered for that by his opponents and by the media and he he still obviously won the nomination nonetheless, um, so he and/or his handlers did a cost-benefit analysis and decided you know it's not worth the upside the potential upside to uh, put yourself up there for a risky uh, primary debate. Um, but this is Herschel Walker. He's quite possibly the most famous person in Georgia. And just because something works for Herschel Walker in Georgia, certainly we can't extend that to apply to to other politicians. And and yeah, with the polarization, as you mentioned in your question, the electorate is so polarized, we're exposed to totally different viewpoints, uh, depending on what we're reading and what we're watching and different, uh, you know, 24-7 cable news coverage. So with the extent to which in-group, out-group, partisan divisions are just so strong, with the two sides just hating each other's guts and practically living in different worlds, maybe a time in the not-too-distant future could come where it's just a waste of time to even have a debate because they're talking over each other and they're quoting statistics that the other side didn't even know about because they were never exposed to that form of political discourse with their news and stuff.
0: Yeah. Wrapping up here, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier um, and and tie it into a, a different portion of this conversation. I personally am way more interested and more likely to tune in to debates To primary debates, because that's kind of how I see that I can separate candidates in my mind and actually make an informed decision on who in my party I would like to vote for. So do candidates take a different approach to the primary debates than they would to the general election debates?
1: Yeah. So primary debates are more influential than general election debates. A primary debate Really can can have an effect on the electability and viability of a candidate more so than a general election debate, um, and so strategically, you've got in the primary, the electorate, the segment of the electorate that you've got to appeal to is far slimmer than a general election, obviously. Um, so, candidates will tend to be more I don't know, inflammatory in throwing their red meat rhetoric to the base, right? Because they've got to set themselves apart from a bunch of other politicians who hold similar, if not identical, stances. Um, like in, in the primary debates that just took place here in Georgia— um, earlier this year you had several races in which the opponents had nearly identical voting records if you went through their voting record looked at you know what they'd supported and opposed in the in the senate or the house here in in uh, Atlanta they were identical right so they have to set themselves apart on other stuff you know they oh i i went to the university of georgia yeah me too i you know <laughs> i i'm you know on senate bill one two three four. I voted this way. Yeah, I did too. Um, so on the issues, on policy stances, they've they're identical. So strategically, they're going to be trying to come off as more impassioned, or uh, or even more inflammatory, more divisive, uh, throwing more red meat rhetoric to their to their base to to set themselves apart. Whereas then, let's say they win. The nomination, they immediately pivot then to trying to appeal to a brighter, a broader swath of the electorate. Right, they're going to modulate, moderate their stances to appeal to a more centrist segment, um, and so yeah, strategically they're going to pivot to the general to try to appeal to more people, and they won't be as equivocal. They're not going to equivocate or or they will be more equivocal, whereas they weren't as equivocal in the primary season. Suddenly, they're needing to be more straightforward and more non-straightforward with more strategic ambiguity that they weren't as disciplined in exhibiting during the primary.
0: Great. Well, thank you for your time today. Well,
1: yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of Grady Research Radio. Thanks for tuning in.